you determine what your pathway is. If you go to the boss and you don't try and learn from him and you don't watch over his shoulder and you don't look at what he's doing, then he won't give you opportunities. Welcome to the Dental Head Start Podcast. I'm David Keir. In this episode, we get really stuck into someone's journey and this journey goes through a lot of ups and downs. I think it's fascinating what we learned through this with Dr. Matthew Yusuf and I think it's so kind of him to share so much with us. Matt is the founder of Australasian Restorative and Implant Academy and as a relatively young clinician, he's already a leader in his field and putting together these courses in both implants and surgery. He brings in some of the best specialists in the country to help you learn and take your first steps in these important topics. It's actually how I got to know Matt and I'm doing the implant course with him. Although it's early days, I'm really excited about the course and getting that hands-on experience to start my journey in implants. But as with many of the people we talk with on this show, it's not the only hat he wears. Matt is a full-time dentist, but of course, to learn what he's learned, he's done hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of CPD from some of the best institutes in the world. His mentor list is a who's who of dentistry and implants. He's also heavily involved in charity and he has other projects on the go at the same time. This is a really wide-ranging chat and in particular, the stuff we get to on about challenge and, and struggle is is fascinating. It's really great to hear someone else's experience in this situation because I think that allows us to put our own experiences in context and help us get through challenging times. So I really hope you get something from this. Enjoy this chat with Dr. Matthew Yusuf. I've been a dental protection member since graduation and I'm so thankful I can partner with them and have their support with Dental Head Start. They've proven their value to me, but what really matters to me is they offer much more than just indemnity. Members receive a range of benefits including Dental Protection's online e-learning platform called Prism. They produce regular webinars and blogs on information you need to know as an early stage dentist and they have unparalleled support from experienced dentolegal consultants including Annalyn Weston who has been on the podcast. Their support for dentists has been shown even more in this challenging time and they're generous enough to offer current members three months free membership when renewing from July 1. I think that really sums up that they're here walking with us. And excitingly, Dental Protection has also launched their new podcast called Risk Bites, a short podcast hosted by Dr. Annalene Weston and the team of Dental Legal Consultants about specific topics to keep you up to date on all things medico-legal. Thank you, Dental Protection, for supporting dental students and graduates, and thank you for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast, Dr. Matthew Yusuf. How are you today? I'm doing well, Dave. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Um, you know what? I can't complain. It's sunny. It's almost 30 degrees here. Uh, it's a Friday and I'm off. But I'm off, obviously, because we're in the middle of the COVID-19 shutdown and we're going to get into lots of stuff with you. I'm really excited for this chat. We're going to talk about implants, business, a um, little bit about you know adversity um, and a lot of stuff. But we're in shutdown. We're not doing dentistry at the moment. How are you going? Um, I haven't worked for about four weeks now, four to five weeks, I think. I haven't worked I, I went into the office once just to hand out some aligners to patients but no treatment um but you know as you as most people would know we've gone back to level two now uh, at the time of recording this so at level two i'm going to go back one or two days a week for now uh, probably two days across two practices and so i'm looking forward to that um during covid i've been okay i've tried to redirect my energy to different places i, I struggled 
for the first two weeks, I'll be honest, like uh, I, for the first two weeks, I was out of sorts. My routine was out of whack. Mentally, I was struggling with the huge drop from five days a week running, you know, multiple businesses and potentially and, and working as a dentist at the same time and that all went to nothing. So, um, I bought a few, yeah, I bought a few PlayStation games in that time as well. <laughs> That's it. Sometimes you just have to, you know, let your brain um, get through it, I guess. And I can really empathise with that. I felt very similar, actually. I thought initially, I thought, all right, I can get a lot done. Um, and then actually, I found it really hard to get that started. Um, and now, yeah, really looking forward to getting back into some routine and a couple of days a week. And yeah, what do you think about the future with dentistry, our patients, the economy? Do you think um, it'll go back to normal? Um, so business is one of my hobbies. Um, I enjoy business and I've been looking at the market on multiple levels. So you can look at it from a local level, from an Australian level, you can look at it from an international level. Um, I have heavy interest in obviously local level for dentists is the most important aspect. Um, but I've got some other things. So I look at it from the US perspective as well. You know, you've got to look at what the share market game is doing as well if you are into that. If you, So, you know, I'm looking at multiple aspects at the moment. I think dentistry, to start with in Australia, will, will have a hit. Will it be forever? Will it be ongoing? No, I don't think so. I think, I think it's harder for, if I'm being honest, it's harder for associates now. I think in five years' time, it'll be really good for business owners if now they're deciding to cut wages and cut staff, and that's what's happening. Like, it, there's no, there's no saying if it's actually already started. You know, we've we've already had uh, our boss one at one of the practices I work at come and ask to drop commission rates twenty percent. That's almost impossible. Yeah. Okay. So some pressures for associates. Any advice, do you think, for associates or any any thoughts on, you know, how do we manage that, especially those really new new dentists? Yeah, yeah. So I was – I got asked or there was a question on uh, the Latrobe alumni page on Facebook a couple of days ago, which was as a new grad or as someone graduating this year, what can I do or, you know, what do I look at in this job market going forward this year? And my response to that was, we got to stop being, you got to stop, you can't be so picky, right? You can't, first year is really tough and we'll go through that, um, my first year at dentistry. Um, But first year out is quite tough, but you're not going to have the options today that we had even five years ago or two years ago. So you're going to need to be less picky, but you need to be on the front foot and you're going to get a lot more no's before you get a yes and that's okay like we're not we're not used to that because we're used to succeeding all the time but it's okay to get a lot of no's and you just keep pushing and you keep working on your interview skills until you get a yes yeah absolutely and they will come and they will get jobs and it will happen it just might be a bit harder but um if you didn't want to challenge you wouldn't have gone into dentistry <laughs> yeah no, and to be honest though if you've got to enjoy that time that you have off between uni and starting work i had two weeks, right, between we got our certificate straight away, so bang, I went to work. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Like enjoy the time off. Use it. Uh, You probably can't travel but use it to – to, to do different things if you have if you can't find work and don't stress about it because once you start work it doesn't stop. 
Yeah, exactly. You, you look back at those times and wish wish you could have it again. Um, and we're going to get into a lot of what you've mentioned, actually. You know, you, your first job, you, you know, where you're at now, um, some of your business interests, I think it's all pretty fascinating. Um, but I do want to start actually with just where'd you grow up? What's your story before you got into dentistry? Um, so, I grew up in Daniel. Uh, if anyone knows Melbourne, so I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I grew up literally in the Bronx, you could say, of Melbourne. <laughs> um, we were on Stud Road, um, which is, you know, like a main road here. And um, it was it was okay. Like my parents were both teachers. They were immigrants. You know, they landed. I was born in Dandy Hospital. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Australian born, but they came out as immigrants. They were working their asses off working, you know, six, seven days a week. So we grew up in that kind of household, but they sent us to private Catholic schools, you know. Um, so I grew up really lucky because uh, I've been back to where I'm from, which is Egypt, and um, we're really lucky to be in this country and I'm, I'm really happy to be here. So we grew up in Dandy. It was a bit rough. We got beaten up a few times, but... Um, what did they do for work? How did they put you through Catholic school? So parents came down. Dad was an engineer originally and mum was a, an accountant and both of them actually became teachers. So they came down, did their dip eds while working and so both of them were teachers at pretty rough schools in, in public systems. So dad was a pretty heavy-handed guy. He was a tough guy. He's passed away now but he's, he's, a, he's a lovely bloke but he worked hard um, and put us through Catholic school and we enjoyed it. We started off... Um, going to school in Frankston and then I, I ended up at Mazenod College which is actually around the corner from where I live now which is a boys school and some of the best years of my life I love school. Yeah do you think that really set up your your work ethic your education obviously and your you know your steps from there on? No nah, that was dad I think that was dad I think dad drove me really hard in a lot of areas um, I had an older brother so that meant that we were already in a slightly competitive environment. And so I think those things helped more so than maybe school was competitive as well. So that was also in sports. You know, I did, you know, you're talking basketball, footy. Uh, I played, you know, uh, representative ball basketball and uh, just local footy. And, and I think that creates competitiveness. Um, yeah. But there's probably an element which is inherent as well. Did you always want to do dentistry? Was that the plan? No. How did you end up? No, no. When did you decide to do dentistry? I didn't really. I, I, wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to get into medicine. Um, and I got a pretty good ATAR score but didn't do too well on my UMAT, you know, which is pretty similar to a, a lot of people. Um, so I got the offer for dentistry pretty late in the piece, say January or something like that, and it was either pharmacy or dentistry. My older brother is a pharmacist. So I was choosing between those two. And I actually personally, I probably wanted to go down the engineering pathway, right? Um, I thought that's where my mind was kind of. But as an 18-year-old, you don't really know what you do, so you follow your parents' advice. And I did. That's the truth. I followed their advice. And I went and did dentistry and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But, you know, I almost dropped out at stages. Yeah, yeah. Is that because you felt, um, you know, didn't find the passion early on? Obviously, you're you're passionate now. You're you're pushing boundaries and uh, implants, cosmetics. You're doing dental education and a lot of other things. And you're still a, a relatively recent graduate. Um, 
Where did you find the passion? Did it come in school or when you graduated? Yeah, it came in school. Um, passion came in school. Passion first, second year, I didn't enjoy dentistry at all. I, I, in fact, I hated it. I wanted to go do commerce or I wanted to go do medicine or I wanted to leave. Um, in third year I or second year, I, I was dead set I was going to drop out. And mum said to me, look, do one more year and if you still feel the same way in 12 months, you can change. Um, and so then that way, the worst case scenario is you've lost 12 months. And so I did that. And that, so in third year is when I fell in love with dentistry. And that's pretty much when we started to see patients because that was when my strengths kind of started to show wasn't so much, uh, you know, in the little anatomy type features and things like that. It's more in the everyday patients. Yeah, yeah, the, the patient communication, the, the physical action of doing dentistry. Tell us about those first years. I know you, um, you hit a bit of a roadblock, um, struggled in that first year. Tell us about that. Yeah, I failed first year pretty pretty horribly. <laughs> um, I was... Um, it's hard to believe from someone like yourself. But <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, not at all because it's interesting. You finish year 12 and you, you're pretty much in the top 2% in the country, right? And then so I came out of year 12 and I actually, I was working pretty much part-time throughout year 12 and then got an offer to jump into a business called Telechoice at the time. And so Telechoice is like a mobile phone distributor of Optus at the time. And it was owned by an Egyptian bloke that I knew and he knew that I worked in phones for the last six, seven years and I was quite good. And so he he asked me to jump on board with him in a partnership to run a telechoice store, a mobile phone store. And of course, he was a big rich investment investor from Perth. So we're trying to run a telechoice store out of Dandenong, and he's a rich investor in Perth, and I've got fifty percent of this business that is turning over five k a month, and the lease is five k a month. Right. <laughs> So you're working, working your ass off trying to make this this work, but at the same time, obviously putting dentistry to the uh, second and the back burner, I guess. Yeah, that was my first mistake. Is I, I actually didn't go to uni a lot, <laughs> and when <laughs> and when I did go, we partied a lot uh, first year. We had a lot of fun, and I think that's because I worked so hard in year twelve. Um, I'm not one of those people that comes across as like naturally smart or naturally a genius i've got to work hard so um that's what i did so what happened to the telechoice business <sighs> you don't still own it do you, you <laughs> thanks going there after? no telechoice <laughs> is gone mate they went bust by it because they made a pretty shitty deal with optus and when that contract ran out optus said stuff you so the five years that i or Actually, the three years that I part owned that that Telechoice store were the three years before Telechoice went bust. So we we went from yeah we we essentially lost all my money in that business and we didn't sell we didn't do anything it just closed down um, for a range of reasons but largely because it was a franchise and the corporate was actually driving the franchisees down. So the corporate was because the corporate knew that the contract with Optus was going to run out in five years. They were trying to make as much money by forcing franchises to purchase supplies and things like that from them at a premium. And so we were actually pushed out and pushed bankrupt by the corporate. Wow. 
That's your first taste of yeah, corporate and franchising business and um, you know, it hasn't pushed you away from business forever but um, that would have been an interesting lesson for sure. You didn't, um, you know, through your university years, you found your passion in third year but there was, it wasn't the end of the, the challenging times for you. Tell us a bit about what happened in third year. Um, in third year, Dad passed away. So Dad was 59 at the time. And he died of motor neuron disease. Okay, so I'll just give a bit of background on this process. Essentially, dad had been sick for a year or two to some extent, but this was 2012. So no one or, yeah, 2012. So no one had known at that stage really a lot about or no one knew a lot about motor neuron disease. So essentially, dad wasn't diagnosed till actually two weeks before he died. Um, we were originally, they had actually, he had what we'll call a frontal, or what he had was a frontal temporal atrophy. So dentists will understand this, right? So the, the front and side of his head, the brain was actually dying. You could see this, what they would do is they take a CT and they could see the, the white cells were dying, right? So he had frontal temporal atrophy and so they thought he'd had a stroke or something like that. So for two months while he was in hospital, he, they were pretty much treating him for stroke until some big nacho came around and said, no, it's um, – and I, I don't mean to be rude. Uh, he's actually a professor in, in neurology here in Melbourne and, and he's quite a nice guy. But, you know, it just took so long in the system to get diagnosis at the time. Um, so he was diagnosed with amyotrophy lateral sclerosis which is a form of motor neuron disease right so it comes in that category and he had an associated frontal temporal atrophy right which happens in 10 percent of these people with motor neuron disease and so they believe that the motor or the atrophy they can occur for up to eight years or can can be occurring for a long time which means dad had a lot of emotional inabilities, things like that, because the front of his brain was dying. So that was a pretty tough time. But in third year, um, and up until then, I'd probably still done really badly at uni. Um, I still wasn't really enjoying it that much. Um, when dad passed away, I went through a shitload of emotions. And um, one thing... I came out was for whatever reason, I was just more driven. Um, I was more, I was anxious, you know, but I was more driven um, and I'm not too sure why. I think it's because I had to put my energy to something. You know, I'm someone that's, that can get anxious, that can get whatever. So I had to put my energy to something. And um, because the passion for uni kind of started that same year, my passion went straight to dentistry and, and that's how I managed that situation. Um, but it was a pretty, yeah, it was a, it was an average time in my life, if I'm honest. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I can't imagine the, the weight of all the challenges at the same time. And, and as you said, not, not knowing exactly what was going on. Um, you mentioned, you, you know, some anxieties and things and there's something that's pretty close to my heart as well. How did you how did you 
manage those anxieties through and, and you know correct me if I'm wrong but I, I get anxious and, and anxieties of these kinds that I still have times where I battle with um, and I think other people out there probably feel the same how do you manage that yeah I still get anxiety yeah like I'm not gonna lie about that I still get it at times um, I've been okay during this COVID thing um, probably only because I, I money's not a personal issue for me and I think if it was that would probably push me over the edge right but how I deal with the anxieties is a pretty, with my anxieties, a pretty simple rule that I learnt from uh, someone who I'd been to see. So it it's pretty much cognitive behavioural therapy to some extent, and I'm no expert, so I'm not going to give, I'm not going to try and put this out as advice. This is just what I do. Um, I use an ABC method. A is kind of the uncontrollable situation, so say COVID nineteen. B is the thought process, which is our thought process. And C is the end emotion. So the end emotion can be happiness, sadness, anger, whatever. The A column can't be changed because that's something that's out of our control. So that can be COVID, money, it can be a whole heap of things, right? It can be my wife walks in and says, you smell um, and I need to respond to that. So what is my process, right? I'm just trying to simplify it. So let's just use COVID as an example. So COVID is my A. B is my thought process. So my thought process can go down a million pathways, which is something we've all learned during this. So the point is that my pathway that I choose should be positive, needs to be positive, must be positive, right? If you listen to Steve Smith, the Australian or ex-Australian cricket captain, who's one of the best in the world at his job, he does not allow negative thought processes to enter his mind. And that doesn't happen overnight, right? This takes training, 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 and more training, right? But it's actually training. So so instead of thinking COVID, no money, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, what am I going to do? Am I going to have a job? Then my end emotion is upset, stressed, anxiety, depression, whatever, Change that thought process to, and this is what took me two weeks to figure out during COVID, right, was I had to change my thought process to being more positive to what can I do during this time, how can I be efficient, how can I be, and then change my mindset. And so once I did that, my end result changed because I wasn't sad anymore and I started to be more efficient and effective and we've started a business in that two weeks. So, you know, like you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it. And it's self-fulfilling as you change that yeah, mindset, those things come up. I think that, that's actually, that's such a beautiful way to put that. I hadn't thought about it like that. I'm going to be using that myself and I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, obviously, this is something that not a lot of people talk about. I think it's important people talk about it because you and I are not the only ones, I think. Um, we're going to get stuck into so much more but the, there's more. You've had a lot of challenges through this university time and um, – and you know you got you got through. You started to find your passion. Um, third year, fourth year, um, fifth year. How how did you tell us about graduation around that time? So in at the end of second year, I think I had a meeting with Professor Wilson at the time, and and they pretty much said, Matt, if you don't clean up your act, you're out. Right. I, I was still rocking up to pre clinic in jeans, and you know. They, you know, they just a whole heap of things. They weren't happy. You know, I was running a business. I wasn't going to class and they said, you know, clean up your act or you're out. And so third year was, I, I did really well, you know, essentially for third, fourth and fifth year, I 
pretty much remained in the top five students going through. Uh, we only had at La Trobe 40 students going through, so um, but we had a lot of really, really smart people and a lot of great dentists now, right, like a lot of really good dentists. And we were kind of really driven in our year to do really well, and, and so we we kind of pushed the limits in that third, fourth, and fifth year amongst my friends. We were trying to push our learning, push it outside of what the material they'd given us. In final year, I had my interview with um, Prof, um, and, you know, it wasn't that long before that, you know, he pretty much said I could be out of the uni or whatever. So I, in final year, I think in that preclinical interview, I topped the class and came third or something in the theory exam overall. But overall, I was, I think, second or third in the year level for final year behind um, uh, a friend of mine who, who did really, really well and really deserved it. But I was, I was a little bit upset that I didn't top it. <laughs> and that's the change. Like first year, I didn't care. It's about getting that drive and then putting that energy towards it and finding the, the passion, I guess. comes at different times for different people. Um, so, so, yeah, you certainly got through. Um, how was the first – tell us about your first job and the time around then. We're going to go back to back into negative. <laughs> uh, my first job was real interesting, right? Um, I had this job pre-organized by – I think July, September of that year and I was going to start in either December or January depending on when my uh, certificate and things like that came about and when registration happened. So we ended up graduating, getting our certificate and all of that um, in November. So I was to start work in December. Um, so I got my first job in Ballarat. So that's kind of two hours where from where I live. It's a rural town. It's got about a hundred and hundred thousand people maybe a little bit more um and i chose that practice i you know in my interview they actually asked me to prep a tooth they asked me to look at x-rays and so initially my thought process was these guys are really thorough i really like this it's a really nice practice they charge quite high i could learn a lot from these people okay so that was my initial thought process and that's why i took that can i mention something one thing I didn't realize at the time, and I'm hoping there are a lot of fifth years, if there are any fifth years that listen to this, they offered me 40% right at the time. They didn't tell me at the time because I was a new grad coming through that that 40% was already including the tax or already including GST, right? So I thought, you know, a lot of people forget this. There's 40% plus GST and there's 40% including GST. Okay, so when you get an offer, make sure you know what you're looking at with or without GST. So at the time, I didn't know. And so it was 40% including GST. So I was to start in December. I was in the morning driving to work. I Actually, the week before I was meant to start work, I'd had, a, I'd had some thyroid tests done and things like that because I'd, I was feeling a bit fatigued after final year or whatever. And those tests showed that my thyroid levels were off. And, you know, initially, no no stress, no whatever. Eventually, you know, a week later, they do an ultrasound and, you know, they find a lump or something in my throat, uh, in the thyroid. And then, so this comes to about the week before I'm meant to start work. So the week before, the Friday before, no, that's a lie, the Thursday before I have my biopsy done, Monday I'm starting work in Ballarat. 
So then on by Monday, I still haven't got the results. So I'm on the way to work. Um, so I'm driving two hours. I give him a, I, I, I give the lab a phone call. You know, I don't say anything. I just say, hey, I'm Dr. Matt. I'm a doctor now. So I'm a dentist, whatever. Can I get some results for uh, Matthew Yusuf, 18 June, whatever. And um, they told me the results. And so what he read out over the phone was, papillary thyroid carcinoma metastasis that's all i heard right right that was so that's all because they only read out the little summary yeah, at the yeah, bottom. yeah that's it the little yeah yeah, right, yeah the little yeah. blurb at the bottom so that's my first day as i'm driving in and so that's about seven o'clock in the morning and i start work at eight um and so i rocked up i was at this i think i had a cry in the car on the way right and then, but by the time I got to work, I just went solid. I just, I just, yeah, just into work, into yeah, work mode. Put your energy into something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so anyway, the next week after that, I couldn't work anymore. I had to have surgery and and um, radiation treatment and things like that. But the boss at the time gave me a window of about two to four weeks off for this, and he wanted me back by four weeks. You know, because that's kind of what the doctors had said anyway. So I went back at about two weeks because I was super eager because I was, you know, first year out. I just wanted to get started. Um, the truth is my thyroid levels were messed up. My emotions were messed up. My judgment, my anxiety was through the roof because I was working so 7 till six, seven a.m. till 6 p.m., five days a week, and then working in Melbourne one day a week. And that was my first six months, right? Wow. Can I say, do you recommend that to anyone? No. <laughs> hell no I think it's so easy for us to come out and um, and think alright let's get at it and forget that you need to balance your you know your mental health as much as anything I don't know many people who can manage that particularly with the other stresses so I, my mental health did not cope okay simple it, it, it did not cope and it continued to not cope until I got out of the situation okay so to think that you're just going to deal with this for a period of time, it depends on what the issues are, right? You can't have blanket rules for anything. So it depends on what the issues in the clinic were. But for me, the issues were the long hours, the micromanagement of the practice, where literally they'd come in and check every single set of notes you'd write. And, and you know, now I look back at that and it's not the worst thing in the world. It kind of drove me to be better. But at the time, I wasn't coping well with stress. I wasn't coping well with bad feedback. And I made mistakes in dentistry. Right, I made mistakes in that six months that I've never made since. Um, but that's because of everything that I was trying to deal with at the time. And actually, when I was most stressed, I should have been reducing work instead of increasing work. Yeah, for sure. How did how did you realize that? Like, obviously, when we're within that, and we kind of just keep plowing ahead. What what was the catalyst for change? Can I also ask? Is everything okay with um, the cancer after that diagnosis? Yeah, yeah, everything's fine now. Thankfully, everything... That must have been... Yeah, no, everything... It was actually not too bad. Um, the initial thought process was quite bad because every cancer is different. My cancer was a, quite a nice one. They they said metastasis, but it only spread to lymph nodes in the submandibular space and then down near the clavicle. So it hadn't really... Um, spread far enough to cause too many issues you know it was just a eight hour surgery and um 
a bit of radiation treatment, radioactive iodine treatment afterwards. So it actually wasn't that bad. Um, you compare that to what some other people go through and they go through much, much, much worse. And, you know, you go through to cancer ward and you look at the kids and you can see, you can tell straight away which ones have cancer from the colour of their skin and that was 10 times worse than what I was going through. So uh, I actually don't really think about it as too big of a challenge in my life. That's really good to hear and I can hear that the mindset as well is such a key part of that and yeah, I'm just I'm fascinated by your, your time through that, that difficult time and where you've brought yourself since then. Tell us about the catalyst of change from that first job. So, the catalyst of change was that six months later, I was still miserable. Um. Six months later, I was – so you get up at 6 a.m., you get home at 7 – because I was in Ballarat, the travel wasn't far, so you're getting home at 7.15, that's fine. But I was buggered. I would have dinner and then go to sleep. That's it. Uh, and six months of doing that drove me mentally insane. Uh, I, you know, I remember shaking when I was about to give anesthetic. I remember just being anxious, not enjoying it. And um, and then I started to look for work and the second I looked for work, the owners in the background had seen that on the service, that seek had come up. And so actually they let me go when they found out that I'd searched seek on the spot. Okay. And that was the best thing they've ever done for me. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Best thing they've ever done because I ended up working at a, an all and four practice down in southeast Melbourne after that. So it actually turned out to be a really, really good thing. Yeah. Wow. That's um. That's such an interesting experience early on, and it's something I guess it set you up probably for what you want and what you look for in in work now. Obviously, you you so you moved to back to Melbourne. Um, uh, got a job with an all and four um, style practice, and is that where the implant journey started for you? Yeah. Um, so where two journeys started for me. One was ortho. I'd started doing POS ortho and um, I started being a, an assistant, a dental nurse for all on four cases, for implant cases. I started doing um, by the end of first year, so six months after being in this job, I'd placed my first implant um, under pretty heavy supervision. Like we were, you know, the weeks approaching that case my boss and I, so I had a really great boss at the second practice. He would come in on Saturdays. We would purchase pig heads and we would practice, right? Because there weren't really courses in Australia back uh, – well, there weren't really good courses in Australia back then to start. So, you, most of your implant stuff really was done overseas. So, how did you how did you find that position? And if someone's interested in implants, do you recommend they try to find a place where they'll they'll let them actually, you know, perhaps assist or perhaps, um, you know, learn in that way? It's up to you. Like you you determine what your pathway is. If you go to the boss and you don't try and learn from him and you don't watch over his shoulder and you don't look at what he's doing, then he won't give you opportunities. If you if if he looks at you as he's your mentor and you have this father son daughter type relationship, which often can happen, and did happen in this case, then they 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 want to give you everything. And so actually, your boss is the person you can learn the most from because they're the only people that are willing to give you a hundred percent of what they know. 
right? The, the mentors and the lectures and whatever, those people, they never give us 100%, right? So your boss is the person you can learn the most from. And so you need to look at it that way. So you want to find a boss that you're proud of that you want to learn from. You'd be proud to call them your boss. And then and then make it easy for them to be able to teach you, you know, yeah, be available, all those things. It's so so often we hear people want mentorship, but they want it delivered on a platter. And I don't think that's how it works. Um, so that's 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 really great. You just dived into implant education after that. You went and did the guide master's clinician program in um, LA. You've done a um, post um, postgrad. Uh, diploma in implants since then um did you just find a passion there how did how did that eventuate so that came out because obviously i was doing the all in four in this practice i had my university mentors that i was still going to see so every month in first year and second year i would go and see professor zimmet in endo because i one of my passions was endo so i'd go to him one hour i took an hour up of his time once a month to show him cases go through cases the second person I went to go see was Karim Aga, um, who's a prosthodontist, and we went through cases and kind of did a similar thing. Um, we didn't do that as often as I did with Prof, but from there, Karim invited me to a lecture by Joseph Kahn. Right? And so I used to go and watch Karim for a whole day, a prosthodontist. I used to go watch him and see what he did. They're, they're kind of the closest people to dentists. So I wanted to see how they did things, how they ran. I wanted to learn from him. Like he's a, he's a superstar. And, and that's the same practice that now I work with Praveen Nathaniel. And so I met Praveen through Karim. Praveen also teaches at Melbourne, so we'd met there. Yeah, so from my mentors, I was invited to a lecture from Joseph Kahn. And Joseph Kahn's this big LA dentist. And that was at Melbourne Uni. And I'm uh, pretty sure Varun Gard run that or, or was a part of that as well. And... Um, I loved that lecture. Like it was a lecture in hands-on and I just fell in love with um, implants, him. I was already in love with implants, but I just fell in love with him, his passion for dentistry, his passion for implants, his passion for surgery, the fact that he would share his failures openly with us. And then so from there I did the guide program because Joe's a part of that. And that's when I decided to do the US guide program instead of the Australian guide program, just because I wanted to learn from Sasha directly. Um, and then I did the postgrad dip, which um, was really good, but is there, there's issues in the university system in Australia, um, you know, the, that mean that postgrad programs are not 100% efficient. Does that make sense? Learning learning experience are not 100% efficient. There's a lot of hurdles and corporate structures that they need to go through. And so it makes university learning very blurred and, and you get different experiences depending on where you go. And the US experience was far better than my Australian experience, if I'm being honest. Yeah. A lot of people talk about that they they spend a lot of their university postgrad time doing or understanding the literature, assessing the literature, um, not as much of that hands-on, not as much as that um, how to actually do it. Does that does that resonate with you? Does it is that what your thoughts are? Literature is how you become a teacher. Right? Literature is how you start lecturing, how you start being involved, how you improve certain aspects of your fine surgical skills you know if you're choosing between 
you know, types of surgery, surgical techniques and things like that, then you go to the literature and whatnot. And the universities are really good at training us at how to go to the literature, right? So they're very good at creating lecturers, creating people who are passionate about dentistry who can then go do their own research. And that's what the kind of university did for me was it just drove me to be able to do my own kind of research into literature and things like that, how to analyze literature appropriately, and then how to lecture about implants and literature and things like that. So getting started in, in implants is, is a challenge. In fact, that's actually um, how we connected, Matt. Um, obviously, I'm doing your Master Implant um, course with ARIA, Australasian Restorative and Implant Academy. It's something you founded. Um, one of the many things you've done, uh, I just don't know how you do all the things you do. Um, we've obviously only just started this course. Uh, COVID-19's happened. It's changed a bit of the flow. But tell us about the genesis of ARIA Dental Education and um, and the vision and what's happening there? Um, ARIA started two years ago um, and it was me and Praveen Nathaniel, who's a prosthodontist in Melbourne, and it started because every course that I'd gone to, there were certain things that I still wanted to get out or there were certain things where there were just – there were certain things lacking. I, I can't explain it in detail, right, but there were certain things lacking – the university programs kind of didn't can't they can't do it quickly they can't teach appropriately in in the sense that they're they're kind of restricted by certain structures and corporate teachings and things like that so there are certain limitations from the university perspective with giving the most up to date kind of research and literature so i kind of really wanted to share my experiences with going through guide with going through um, Loma Linda University with going through the postgrad diploma and, and you know, heaps of courses. Um, and so what I wanted to do was create a specialist-driven program that was modulated. They were kind of the two things that I wanted to do. I wanted to have specialist lecturing and I wanted it to be spread over a period of time so that students had the ability to learn over a period of time the right amount of material. You know, it wasn't just everything's online and, you know, you kind of, then just go and play stuff and do whatever. No, it's kind of modulated. There's learning, there's mentorship. You know, we're here to teach. We've got, you know, everyone's a specialist except for me, All right? So I'm the only guy. My job is as the course coordinator is to make sure the dentists get the most out of the program. So if I feel like a lecturer is not doing what I think they need to do, I pull them up straight away, not in a bad way. All our lecturers are great, right? But we need to make sure teaching is at a maximum. All right, so that's what that's what we're working on, and that's my passion. So I'm just trying to execute that um, to give dentists the best opportunity to learn in whether it's implants, whether it's wisdom teeth, whether it's restorative, whatever. Like, I just want to provide a pathway. Yeah, and it's something that you know, as, as someone like myself, I just want to get a you know broader understanding, a tiny bit of um, practical experience, and then that will facilitate the rest of my journey. Um, and and yeah, so far like that modulated um, idea is really good too because I can digest that component and then move on to the next. And I think it's good hearing from the specialists as well, Dave. Like, what do you? How do you feel? Like, I guess is there's a difference from hearing from me when I lecture as a general practitioner, the amount of literature you get from the specialists and. And what, what do you think? Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Well, a varying um, group of specialists as well. And I think, um, you know, the the information they provide is 
is a deeper understanding and it allows us to then better understand the broader concepts. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been good. Obviously, we're only for um, very early steps, um, and I look forward to the rest of the program. Um, the I would like to one day do the surgical extraction stuff as well. <laughs> it sounds pretty cool. Um, what's the future for Aria? So the future for Aria is probably slowed down a little bit because of COVID nineteen, which is okay. You know, we don't mind. Um, education overall is still probably the most important thing we can do to grow our net worth, right? There is no way to, the the reason why I invested so much in dentistry was because of me, not because of anyone else, right? Forgive me, I want to provide the best care that I possibly can. But if you, if you want to care about money and things like that as well, then Increasing my skill set is the only way to increase my turnover year on year without trying to go faster. And I don't see going faster as an option for me. Right? I'm a, in fact, I'm going slower the more years out of dental school I am. I'm actually going slower and slower each year. It's um, That's a really, really good point. We might even segue a little bit into that. Um, we the, the best investment we can make, particularly early in our dental career, is CPD, is, is, is developing ourselves, whether it's CPD or personal development, whatever it is, if it can increase our um, ability to earn, to put frankly, it will increase our wealth long term. We could put 10 grand in the bank, it'll be worth a lot more later on, but 10 grand into a good course that allows us to provide you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of um, procedures for patients who need it is, is, is amazing. How, with that attitude, I know you had a few things you wanted to bring up around that, what, like people thinking about money investments themselves um, early on. So early on, I think number one, your biggest investment is yourself. Okay, so you need to invest. So if we look at this as you've got 100% money, let's call it 100K for whatever reason, you want to be investing roughly 40% into yourself early on, right? Uh, Not of your complete turnover, of your investments, okay? So you want to be putting 40 to 50% in yourself. Why? Because the best way, not the only way, but the best way, to increase your turnover year on year is to upskill, is to improve yourself, is to improve your skill set, improve your communication, improve how much treatment you're doing per patient and so forth. So number one, I think you need to put 50% of your investment money into yourself, okay? And, and in fact, in my case, I put well, uh, well above 50%, Okay. And that's a lot of my investment money, right? Not all my money, but my investment money. The rest of my money I put into property. Okay, because you're going to come out of uni first year out. And if we want to talk figures, like no one knows what's going to happen 2021, but let's assume you're going to be making anywhere from 50, 60 to 100 grand, right? You might make more, you might make less, right? Uh, It doesn't matter. You want to be investing that money back into yourself while your expenses in life are low. Okay, so before you have kids, before you you have schooling and things like that to pay for. I know Dave, you've got it, you've got kids, so but you're still managing to do it. But it means you need to earn more money to do that. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that's a really good point. Like you can do it if you, you know have kids, you have a mortgage, whatever you're doing, but it's a lot harder, so it's slower. And and if you 
can do it before you get what some people call the golden uh, handcuffs, <laughs> um, it makes a lot more sense. Once you start earning and then spending that and getting used to that, very hard to go back. It's very hard to go back. It's very hard to go back. And I think so on property, right? You want to start setting up yourself to some extent to have other investment portfolios outside of dentistry, okay? And the most common one that we as dentists go to is property. Why? Because it's generally safe. In 2020, right now, this is a great market to purchase property, right, at at property pricing now, considering property pricing, considering income and things like that. It's a bigger discussion, but it depends on your ability and things like and, and what not. But property should be something that should be on your forecast early on. So say six to 12 months after you've graduated, you should start to be looking at having roughly 10% of a, a house down pack. You need to have your stamp duty on top of that if you aren't going to get stamp duty subsidies. But by 12 month, month mark, you should have a property of some sort, right? You, maybe 2021 is not perfect, but depending on what your income is, you can make it happen, right? You choose what your expenses are. You're not going to be traveling this year and next year. So holiday expenses are not going to be what they were. You don't need to go on your extravagant holidays like a lot of dentists do. So you may have enough money at least early in your career to try and put something to some properties. And then um, if you're smart enough, then you actually get into some minor developments, things like that. And that's how you kind of grow your portfolio from one property to multiples. And, and broaden your, your wealth but also your um, your income later on is diversified. And, you know, for the dentists who have done that and a bit more established perhaps than you and I, um, you know, diversified income has allowed them probably to get through this a bit easier than some others, I'm sure. Yeah, you, the one thing you can see now through COVID is practices that re- or owners that have relied on dentistry only, they're struggling. Okay, so you need to create as many assets to your bow that you can even outside of dentistry. Early on, I'm not asking you to go be a business entrepreneur or whatever. You shouldn't be doing that because that'll create more stress. But what you should be doing is being smart with your money so that you're divvying up a certain percentage to go to a property very early on, especially with the market the way it is now. It's a great time to buy. So, you know, that's my advice. I think that's really – it's really important people have a good think about that kind of stuff. Obviously, we're not financial advisors, so <laughs> take it with a grain of salt and go to an advisor as well. Um, but Matthew's certainly someone who knows what he's talking about. And from that business point of view, now we've, we've talked about, you know, ARIA, the dental education, um, some of your own other things in the past, but you're also doing a bit of charity as well, which I only found out when we were talking about, you know, having this chat. The Australian Christian Dental Aid um, charity, tell me about that. about that. You're one of the founders. So uh, the dental volunteering work, I, I've kind of always done a little bit of things. You know, I don't, I don't really like talking about this too much. But what what happens is, uh, what happened was in say first, second, third year, I'd been to Vanuatu and done some work with kind of my local church community and things like that. And then in final year dentistry, I decided to make that related to dentistry, like that volunteer work. So I went to India to do some volunteer work for a company called International Volunteers HQ, right? And what I learned from that was another fact that corporates ruin everything. Um, because you go there, you stay with this family, you're, you're, you pay like $2,000 for the week and you stay with a family that feeds you beans and, and they're probably getting paid $50 out of that. 
And then the rest of it is they're sending you to these slums to do dental work with no equipment. So you're in these slums trying to do dental work that you can't do. There's no suction. There's no high speed's got no water. You know, it, it, the the drill would fly out of the handpiece if you hadn't put, if you didn't put pressure on it at the same time. Right. So imagine like you actually have to put pressure for the drill piece not to come flying out. And so that made me realize is that these big volunteering companies are taking a huge cut, right? There's sad, but true, right? Their margins are ridiculous and they just hide it by saying they're paying their director or whatever X amount of dollars and then they're not for profit, right? So that's what happens in the big bad world. What we've done is created a no fee dental charity. Okay, so what we do is there are some legalities. We have all of the like approvals with respect to DGR status and tax exemption and things like that. So we have this set up properly by a lawyer and we've got a team of, of six of us. Today, this is run by Abinub Saeed who runs these kind of charity trips to Vanuatu with his boss, George Kodus, right? And so like this is another example of a really good relationship with your mentor where the mentor was paying for Abba to go and then now we all do it on our own. We actually started work in Melbourne as well. So we were doing work out of North Richmond. Um, and so that's what we do now. We, we mainly work on Vanuatu. We provide access. We've got dental rooms. We've got access to schools. We've got access to the Vanuatu government. Um, you know, they've got a population of about 900,000 for the whole kind of Vanuatu country. But then when you look at Port Villa, they've got, I think, something like 500,000 and they've got two or three dentists or four dentists or something. So the need out there is massive. And and the aim for ACDA or the Australian Christian Dental Aid is to become a platform in the future where we've got multiple locations where dentists can go and do their charitable work without worrying about fees and stuff. You know, we'll we'll give you recommended accommodation, recommended this. Um, We even do like, we'll pay for the trip for you and you just donate the money to us. So then that way we can give you a tax invoice for, but you give us everything you want. You know, like we're, we're not, everything's open doors, open books, open everything. The aim is just to help the people out there. And, you know, like we went, that's awesome. We went last year uh, with a team of five of us. We did 300 extractions over three days between five of us. Like, it was crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of need and a lot going on um, in these countries. It's awesome to hear. It really is. How do people get involved? Can people get involved with you? Yeah, right now, it's going to be tough over the next 18 months. So, we're not, we're not going to do anything. Look, the truth is, Vanuatu hasn't really been hit hard. So, we're not sure how long. We'll, we'll, we'll stay out of there, but I imagine travel will be restricted for the next 12, 18 months. So for now, that's going to, unfortunately, like the people there, you know, they've pulled out all their Medi-Aid, like the government, Oz government's pulled out everything out of Vanuatu, right? Just So these third world countries are going to get hit 10 times worse than any of us uh, from this coronavirus. And so I we will make a plan to, to come back. But right now, I don't know what that is. I've got to see how things go. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure people who are interested can get in touch and um, when that happens, there'll be hopefully a good team that can can serve that population. Let's get stuck into some of the the tips and bits you you might have for those younger dentists, the graduates, the students. Um, And I want to actually start one, maybe this is a bit selfish, but I want you you do a lot of things. You do this business, like a few different businesses. You're doing the charity work. You're a full-time dentist um, and you've had a lot going on. How do you juggle all of this? I've also had a restaurant and bar as well. <laughs> and um, give us give us the one minute on that. Tell us about that story. Uh, that's a Brunswick. Uh, so that was in uh, Fitzroy, Brunswick Street, Fitzroy in Melbourne, and we we had the, we had a bar for four or five years. Um, and my advice on that, to keep it simple, is try not to run businesses that you're not good at. Uh, I remember I went in one day, Dave, to to be a chef after work so I'd work nine to five or whatever at Turak at the practice and then went to cook burgers (laughs) Um, and that was the final year before we decided to get rid of it and and lost a lot of money as well so um, I've lost a lot of money along the way. A lot of of good lessons I'm sure but that, um, that makes sense it's easy for people to think you know to see that business opportunity and something they enjoy and want to then step into it as a, a professional i guess um you know we're, we're good at being dentists <laughs> and we need to self-evaluate the rest of those skills um how do you juggle it all that's an interesting question um i function at kind of 150% all the time what I mean is like my mind doesn't stop so I think one of the things that makes me anxious is the fact that my mind doesn't stop right it's, it's always going it's it's always on the move it's always thinking about things to do and and my wife hates it right she hates it because I can have three conversations with her within a minute right about all different things so coping is interesting I, I'm I'm still learning to cope. Um, but what I'm doing is trying to put routine in my life. And routine is a really powerful tool because your body becomes so adjusted to certain things. Like I used to only be able to do efficient work in the morning, right? But it took time to train to be able to do morning stints, break, go again, afternoon, work harder, put time aside for my wife. We don't have kids yet, so that makes it a lot easier, right? When we have kids, that'll change. My priorities will change. I'll pull back a little bit from different things, and that's okay. That's that's the path that I've chosen. You know, things won't make as much money, and that's okay. Um, so right now, I concentrate, number one, on, on keeping my wife happy. So as long as I can do that, I can do these things. Yeah. It, it, everything you just said resonates with me. Um, one, my mind is always going. That's how we end up doing all these bits and pieces that we all do. But um, the second is routine. Routine Without routine, um, I'm kind of lost um, and I, I need routine and pieces of time where I'm doing certain things. Um, then the last thing is, you know, allocating time to your friends, your family. Um, you know, I've got a young daughter and, and a wife and, and I have to have that specific time because I can get a bit too consumed in what I'm doing as well. Um, so I think for anyone out there who's trying to push those boundaries and do lots of things, um, those tips are fantastic. What about what about people who want to get into implants? What should they be doing? What should they be thinking about? Let's say they're like fifth year or fourth year, final year students. Um, 
and first year graduates what should they do i think one of the most important things is you need to be you need to be working in an environment that's conducive that's conducive to good quality care all right so if you're working so here's where it's different right if you're working at a budget practice where you're only charging or your practice is only charging $4000 for implants it's different you can't go and do a $40,000 course because your return on investment will take a long time. Uh, if you work, if, if you can find a job, so my advice is if you do want to get into implants, find a really good mentor who places really good implants. Okay, so find someone who you get along with well is placing one of the good brand implants, not... Uh, you know, again, I've got to be careful what I say, Dave, because you, you, I'm not – this is just what I look for. So what I look for is I looked for a boss who was placing, you know, Noble Biocare at the time implants or Astra implants and then, you know, I, when I found him, I, I, I spent so much time just trying to learn from him and that's where I got most of my learning from. It, it wasn't from the courses initially. Initially, it was from my mentors. So, but courses wise, like one of the things that I designed ARIA for was for entry level, right? I, I, I don't try and tackle much else, right? Deliberately at the moment, ARIA is, is designed for first to 10 year out, right? Anyone in that time frame, kind of, if you're a beginner in something or you want to get, you know, you, you just, you're, you're at this basic or entry level, we're going to take you to that moderate level. I'm not promising to make anyone a genius in implants or someone to place graphs from here or there and I'm, and I'm not trying to make, uh, you know, I'm deliberately not putting up posts where I'm doing those things, right? Because you're not going to learn that as a beginner and my target student is beginners because that's what we teach to. Yeah, we should learn to walk before we can run um, and that's the type of course and situation we look for. Well, with You've got some amazing mentors as well. Um, you know, some of the people we were talking before, um, Sasha Javonovic, um, Joseph Kahn, Carl Stanley um, and I think it, is it your boss, George um, Paltogo, um, all these guys, how do you… How do you connect with them? And what I mean by that, um, so people talk about mentors all the time. And, you know, I've got lots of people I know and mentors network through the podcast in particular. But um, how do you connect with them? Do you message them every, say, month and have a case to chat about? Or do you, you know, do you know what I mean? How do you get the most out of that? I think the more important question, Dave, is how did I get those contacts? Right? Yeah, yeah. That's, well, let's go there. That's step one, right? Um, so, step one, in my investments to go to these courses, you can choose to be a nobody, which I mean by sit back, write your notes, and then walk out. You can choose to be the person that goes up. And, and so I was always known at uni for being that annoying person to ask questions, right, of my lecturers of whatever. I'd go up. Chris Coachman, when he first lectured to me in LA, I went up and spoke to him for half an hour afterwards, <laughs> right, as he was leaving, and you just pull them aside and you try and talk to them. They're not always happy doing those things. Some of them aren't. But people like Joe and uh, so my biggest mentor, Sasha Jovanovich, I spent a week with him in LA just following him around. Um, I don't get me wrong. I paid money for it. But um, <laughs> following him around, we had dinner with him multiple times. I happened to – one of the students in the course is from Denmark. His name is 
last parson and he's a oral surgeon and he was already good friends with Sasha. So I became really good friends with Lars, not just by chance. And then so we started going out to dinners together. Uh, when Sasha was in Sydney, we had time, we had beers with Chris Ho and Sasha um, together. And so I just made myself there. I made myself available, right? And then when I made myself available, they had time and or when they had time, I was there to learn from them. And so now it's all just communications when I need to with cases, right? So now if I have a case that I need to share with them or I want their advice, then that's how I do it. And it's usually via email these days or phone call. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic advice is you can go to a course and you can be a nobody. You can sit in the back and you can take your notes, you can leave um, and you cannot get the best value out of that course or you can go and ask the questions you can take a list of stuff that you want to learn and then you can you know be around so that when the opportunity comes to ask the right question or learn the right thing it happens uh, i think that's fantastic i've definitely been both sides of that coin um and spent a lot of money perhaps and not got the best out of a certain course so um great advice speaking of advice um I like to finish these off with a few things, a few tips for, for graduates and students and I want you to think about yourself, um, you know, going back to your uni days and perhaps the first year or so out. Um, imagine you could teach yourself, you could whisper something in your ear and you could you could say some advice. What advice would you have given yourself? Uh, work smarter, not harder. Um, and that sounds really vague but what I mean by that is don't worry about working five or six days a week. Forget about that. Work three days, right, and be really good in those three days. Just kill those three days. Walk out of those three days and be like, I smashed dentistry today, right? And if you do that in your first year, you'll grow so far. If you choose, and, and you've heard this before, but if you choose to cut corners, it'll it'll burn into your practice, right? It'll People that need to now use rubber dam because it is COVID are going to struggle. <laughs> I, whereas we don't care. Like in our practice, exactly. we, use, like, we use rubber dam for every single feeling. So Back, back to normal. <laughs> yeah, like who cares, right? So concentrate on quality. Concentrate on slow dentistry. Not to the point where your patient's got jaw rake because you're taking four hours, <laughs> but to the point where you give your patients break, you concentrate on certain things, master that prep, master putting the band in, master putting that wedge in so that there's no gap, right? Little trick is just put some Teflon tape around your wedge when you put it in. Make sure it's it's nice and sub-ginge. Make sure your margins where your matrix band are perfect because what's going to cause – number one cause of failed restorations is dentist, right? I don't care what anyone says. 100%. Yeah, right? I couldn't agree more. So just master the basics and then when you do that, you'll kill everything going forward. It, it's so easy. It's, it's so hard when you, you graduate, you just want to go and earn money and do this and that. But at the same time, if you, if you do slow down, learn those basics really, really well, you will over the course of your career 10x the amount that you could earn, the amount that you can do and the pleasure and joy you get from your work. So just on the money front, right? If you're a gun first year out, you're not going to make that much money, all right? First year out as a gun, you will not make that much money, right? Not compared to what you'll make in five years' time if you're a bigger gun. So how do you get there? Don't worry about making an extra 20 or 30,000 in your first year. Worry about quality, worry about precision, and then down the track you'll you'll make five, six times what you're going to make if you just run the mill. And, and So most people who just do run-of-the-mill dentistry will, will turn over between one and a half and two and a half thousand dollars a day. When you start doing bigger cases and things like that, 
your turnover per, per day grows exponentially, right? It's just depending on the cases you can bring in. So um, don't concentrate on uh, the number of patients, concentrate on quality in each patient and, and doing all the treatment that each patient actually needs, not telling them you need one filling because you're too scared to tell them they need four. You know, Lincoln Harris talks about having this figure in your mind that you can't get past. Yeah, yeah, increase that figure early on. Who cares? Just do it. You force yourself to do it. You won't get the first patient. You might not get the second patient, but I bet you you'll get the third or fourth one. Just practice. It's so true, working on communication. But the other thing or side of that coin that I think is just as important is that if because we're scared to present a certain plan, which may be and most likely would be the plan that we would give our parents or ourselves, in a way, we're doing a disservice to the patient as well. So, um, moving through that very early and understanding communication, understanding our treatment planning and giving, you know, best treatment options to our patient is so, so important. I'm going to ask one, one more question and you, you've done a lot in your, you know, you've, been, you've been graduated, I think is it six years now um, and you, you've done so much. I want to ask, do you think a lot of what you've, achieved in this time has been due to your hard work or has it been due to luck yeah i don't like this question um i don't like this question because i I don't think i've achieved that much yet i think i've still got a really long way to go um and that's okay like i'm happy with where i'm at though at the moment in the sense you know one thing i had to learn early on was i couldn't be the best at everything straight away right i wanted to be the best in dentistry i I thought I was the best clinically in final year. And then when I got out, I learned very quickly that I was rubbish, right? So um, I, I've still got a long way to go with what I, with what I want to do and I've got a long pathway. And, and so right now, uh, I'm, I'm proud of where I'm at with respect to I put my mind to something and I know I can make it happen. And, you know, I learned that just by doing it. I didn't learn it by thinking it. Um, so put your mind to something. You definitely can make it happen. You just got to be smart about it. We're smart people. So you just need to redirect your thought process into uh, into being a little bit more creative and a little bit more aspiring, a little bit more positive. You know, dentists are very analytical and, and very negative. And, you know, the, the new business I'm working on now, the numbers don't look great, you know, but it's um we're working on ways to improve that and we'll get it started and and we'll push it and and you just yeah push the boundary of of business and push the boundary of of dentistry but um never run before you can walk it sounds to me like what you've done is worked really hard and achieved a lot and i'm really excited to see what you're going to do in the future the new new things you're working on aria and and where that's going and and where you evolve to as a clinician so matthew thank you so much for your time on the dental head start podcast thanks for having me Dave. cpd is expensive travel time away from work hotels it all adds up imagine being able to see the content from world-renowned speakers from all over the globe Learn about restorative, full mouth work, communication, surgery, and tons more, all from the comfort of your own home. No travel costs, no hotels. That all exists and is getting better every day on the Ripe Academy from Restoring Excellence. For just $29 US per month, you'll get access to some of the best online content and save thousands on the real life course equivalents. 
In fact, if you look really closely, you'll actually see me on there. I paid thousands for that course, it was awesome and now it's just 29 US dollars a month to see the same stuff. Find out more on the Ripe Dentistry Group or at restoringexcellence.com. All right. Thank you, Dr. Matthew Yusuf, for sharing so much of your journey. As I said in the start, it's really, really great to hear these kinds of things and to help us, you know, move through our own struggles. And Matthew's attitude and perspective on things is really inspiring. If you want to find more about Matthew and what he's doing, go to ariadentaled.com.au. Now, as always, we've got the Prime Head Start segment proudly brought to you by Prime Practice. We're talking with Meg Sharp and Meg is their compliance expert and that is... She talks about infection prevention, infection control, and all the things that we must be really good at. And obviously, COVID-19 has just highlighted that fact. Um, This is critical. There's no excuses. We have to know this stuff. So, she goes through the three common oversights or mistakes that practices often make when it comes to their infection prevention. Welcome to the Prime Head Start segment, proudly brought to you by Prime Practice. This episode, we're joined with Meg Sharp. Meg is the compliance expert with Prime Practice and, of course, with recent times, she's been extremely busy. So, Meg, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's it's our pleasure to have you. And I, I want to talk about something um, Compliance, it's something that we all need to do. It's extremely important, infection prevention and sterilization. But we we make mistakes. You're someone who goes into practices and audits and checks and helps people get better at this. What are the mistakes that you see dentists commonly making? Um, look, actually, to be honest, they're, they're quite boring. So for clinicians, it, it's those <laughs> kind of, it's those like, oh, not that stuff again, but I'm sorry, um, because they are but really... so important. Totally, absolutely, and they are the. They're not. I guess they're not really very exciting in dentistry things. You know, they're not clinical, and they're not terribly fun. If you're not, some people think they're fun. As a practitioner, <laughs> you know, think they're wonderful to be bowled over with policies. So, look, if I had to narrow it down to three, and we talked about picking three, uh, look, I'd have to say let's start with the kind of really heavy one, which is documentation. It's having policies, procedures, manuals, regulatory guidelines, where are they? Do people know where they are? Have they been read? So it's, it's you know, you have to, I guess you have to have a roadmap, right? You've kind of got to have some plan. And particularly as a clinician, you get busy doing what you're doing and you love it and you're oh so good at it. And you kind of think that all of that will happen in the background and someone will come along, you know, the procedure fairy will arrive. But um, it's really important from that risk management strategy perspective, um, from an owner of an annual practicing certificate perspective, you you do have to have that stuff documented. So, you know, a little bit ho-hum that it can feel. Uh, Number one on my list has to be lack of, for the most part, documents, the regulatory body, the sterilization, monitoring and documentation. There's that old adage, if it's not measured, it's not done. So even if you're doing all the daily tests and they're all written in a little notebook or something, they really do need to be collated and managed a bit better. That's um, that's a really great point. And that's something they'll, they'll ask you if you do get audited. They'll ask you where the manuals are and does totally. everyone know where it is totally. and all of those important things. So, it's a critical part. So, what's what, what else other things will we see um, mistakes being happening? Uh, look, I think the second one for me is training and good training, not a little bit of YouTubing and finding out, you're being resourceful and finding your own information is fabulous, absolutely. 
but getting the staff together, clinicians and auxiliary staff and front office, you know, included, particularly in the infection prevention space. So everyone gets together, everyone here. Infection prevention is the new patient journey, you know, always has been, but right now really is. I mean, so it can be an area that's that's a little bit glossed over or people are find their own training or they're left to their own devices a bit. So training as a group can be wonderful because then the DA, everybody can air their differences because what we really want is not my way or the practice that I used to work at or how you used to do it. We want this practice our way. This is the guidelines way and we all do the same thing because at the end of the day, we're looking for a reproducible, remember, validated outcome. That's easy to get from a machine not so easy to get from it from a bunch of you know from from a bunch of team members so training and, and having that team managed approach i think is probably number two on my list so with that as well if if we're all doing different things in sterilization that's a critical error that can occur totally. and so having everyone on the same page and training in together is, is just a crucial part of the steps yeah it really does and sadly the some of the cases i get involved with those things they happen far more regularly than you might think they do. And very important for associates and graduates who we are often talking to on the podcast is that you'll step into someone else's practice and you need to be ensuring that this is happening because you're actually responsible for that. Great, accountable. Uh, yeah, uh, so you can get, delegate any responsibility you like. That is a, a fabulous point. When I'm talking to non-owner clinicians, hygienists sometimes, like I just work here, if that's up to that's up to him, it's not my practice. And sadly, the instruments that you use are in the patient's mouth. It is actually your accountability and, and responsibility. So yeah, you do need that old visit through the sterebate and know what's happening, what the journey is. Yeah, definitely. So what's the third thing that you see uh, most commonly, Mr. The third thing I think is, is around efficiency of workflow. And that's a big one. And I purposefully use that as a big one instead of just picking a little thing. Um, and because I just, I guess, in terms of what we're talking about, I'd ask everybody to just really think how streamlined, efficient and effective is my workflow? So have we got instruments all over the place? Are they being wiped after use? Are they in a, you know, what you do in use and how they're managed very quickly after that can have a huge impact on that whole workflow process. And in my observations, I do a lot of time and motion studies. They can be in excess of 45 minutes per dental assistant per day if you don't streamline. Yeah, so it's for me, it's quite a big one and I purposefully sneakily throw it in there but look efficiency of workflow has to be a, a thing that would reduce mistakes as well it oh, would be totally. if you're doing it the same way every time and you're efficient and you Absolutely. know how things work yeah and so it's a lot about having everyone including us as the dentist understanding the process having a clear direction and clear manuals and then um, doing it efficiently as always it's been critical but obviously right now it's top of mind so meg Absolutely. thank you so much for sharing that you're with welcome. us you're welcome you're very welcome thanks Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start. 
to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.